Well, dear friends, I ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to the book of Job and the words that I read to you in your hearing. We read from chapter 31 and also chapter 32 of the book of Job. And as you're turning there, let me say by way of introduction this afternoon, I've been praying, of course, over the last few weeks and days as to what message to bring to us at the start of a new year. And this, of course, is our first meeting. We meet here especially once a month, and you're invited every month to come along and to hear God's Word and to praise God with us and to also have fellowship, not only to learn from His Word, but to enjoy fellowship one with another. And I've been praying that the Lord will bring a word in season for us, for our needful souls as we gather here this afternoon. And therefore I take for my text words found in the verse 7 of chapter 32. But I read from verse 6 to the verse 9. And uh, the Lord has laid, I believe, upon my spirit a message for us this afternoon. We read from verse 6 of chapter 32. In Elihu, the son of Baruchel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, days should speak and a multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. I feel that these are very apt words, particularly in the verse 7 for this young people's meeting. For here one is speaking by the Spirit of God. His name is Elihu. He seems to come out of nowhere. This is God's inspired, infallible word. And God commends Elihu. Whereas the words of these other three friends, and including Job, the Lord speaks a very stern word against them, but approves the words of Elihu. The Lord says later, that Elihu has spoken wisely. Now, Elihu is one that seems to come out of nowhere. We know, I trust the book of Job. Those of you who don't know, Job was a very godly man by the world's standards. A great man, a man who eschewed evil, a man who walked uprightly. He wasn't, of course, a sinless man. But then we know from the account of Scripture, what happened. Satan, indeed, saw this man. The Lord pointed him out even to Satan and said, Hast thou not considered my servant Job? Is there none like him? The Lord, through his wisdom and divine providence, ordering all things, had ordained that even Satan could attack Job, but not take his life. He could take everything from Job, but not his life and not his wife. Well, this man, after Job's three friends came to visit him, seems to come out of nowhere, as I've said. He seems to appear on the scene. He's not there in chapter 2 when Job's friends come to see him and they hear of the calamity that has fallen upon Job. 
those three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite, they said many wise things, but they couldn't judge Job's heart. They said many correct things, many wise things, but they thought that the reason that trouble came to Job's life is that he had harbored some secret sin in his life. But of course, that was not true. They couldn't have been any further from the truth. God was bringing these calamities upon Job and his life for many reasons. To teach Job things that he needed to learn about himself. Young people, God owes us nothing. We came into this world and everything that we receive from God is a gift. Your life, God owes you nothing. If he was to snatch your life right now and to send you to hell, he would be perfectly just. Perfectly just, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. But God in his mercy has predetermined to save some out of this sinful world by the death of his son. So really we owe God nothing. And God would be perfectly just to send any man to hell and none can complain. None should ever complain. Job said it right. Naked I came and naked I leave. He came from the dust. Everything that he had, all the children that he had, was a gift from God. And if God were to take it, and he did take it, those gifts, that livestock, all that he had, God was perfectly just. And then there are the various discourses and arguments to and fro between Job and his friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite, throughout the book of Job. Until, of course, as I said, this young man, Elihu, appears on the scene, much younger than them. Now again, let me say, Wisdom is imperative, isn't it? But where do we get wisdom from? Only from God. True wisdom is from above. This is not worldly wisdom that we're speaking about, but we're speaking about the wisdom. And Christ, if you were to read Proverbs chapter 8, Christ is spoken of there as wisdom. He was there when the worlds were framed. It was made by him, who is wisdom. He was there with the Father. He was daily his delight with the Father. And of course, the one here speaking by the Spirit, really we could say is Christ. If this is the words we find here, given by the Spirit of God, they are indeed the words of Christ. Because we are told in Romans 8 verse 9, that he that hath not the Spirit of Christ is none of Christ. And it is Christ's word that we are preaching here. Christ is God, very God. And God was manifest in the flesh. Now this afternoon I want to bring a message. I said it's a timely text, and I believe it is. Elihu says, after Job has spoken all the things in chapter 31, and Job sets before us 
how he lived before men. And then we read of how Elihu's anger kindled against Job because Job justified himself and not God. That's the key. The great key to the book of Job is the second verse of Job 32. It's the key to the book, I could say, or we could say. Then was kindled the wrath, wrath of Elihu, the son of Baruchel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. If you study chapter 31, Job speaks about his godly life before men. And nobody could really deny that. But of course, he wasn't perfect. But what Job did have wrong was some of his thoughts toward God. And this can be sometimes so true in the life of not only a Christian, but especially those who are not Christians. Men will justify themselves and not God. And here he has some words of wisdom for us as we venture upon a new year. Look at the words in the verse 7. Elihu says, Days should speak, and a multitude of years should teach wisdom. Think of what he's saying. He's saying, every day that you live has a voice. Days should speak. They should be telling you things. Each day that you live has something to say of your life. We want to think about that here this afternoon. As we look back over the last year, the year 2022, that is past, that year of 365 days. Sometimes I have to remember, was it a leap year or not? But we're speaking about a, a year that has passed. What have our days said to us? And what are years saying to you? And notice what else he says, and a multitude of years should teach wisdom. Days should speak. And a multitude of years should teach wisdom. Now, what is the difference? There is knowledge, isn't there? And there is wisdom. Knowledge is what? Information. And there are many clever people out there, aren't there? They can tell you all sorts of things about computers and geography and history. Maybe you've been to university and you're learning. But what is it all, friends? What you learn is not coming with wisdom. What is life teaching you? And all that you are acquiring. Solomon was a man who had great knowledge, but he also had great wisdom. And at times one wonders about Solomon. Finally, he seems to come back and honor God in his life. Well, I say that in passing. Well, here we want to mention a few things, first of all, about Job before we come to this text. I think we need to understand this because it'll be helpful to look at Job's life. Contrary to the claims of many modern evangelicals today, many have said that Job lived before the flood. That could never be true. 
because you go to Job chapter 1 and read of the Chaldeans and you read of the Sabaeans. And of course, before the flood, well, there weren't different tribes, were there? There weren't different languages. Not before the Tower of Babel, which was well after the flood. Many have suggested that Job lived before the flood. We're told, look at chapter 1, verse 1, that Job lived in the land of Oz. And during the flood, we know after God flooded the earth, there was a cataclysmic event and there were total land changes all over the world. This place, by the way, Oz is mentioned in the book of Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 21, also in Jeremiah 25, verse chapter 25, verse 20, and it was southeast of Palestine. It was a real place, and this man, Job, was a real man. James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, mentions him. He's not a fictitious character. He's not some make-believe character. I've already mentioned that he lived after the flood. If you just turn there to chapter 1, verse 15, we Read there of the Sabaeans that fell upon his oxen. He lost everything. He lost all of his livestock and cattle and sheep and camels and so on. Job lost much. Job is also mentioned later in the book of Ezekiel chapter 14 alongside Daniel and Noah, these three godly men. And uh, chapter 1 really tells us that he was upright, that he eschewed evil. I mentioned that James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, mentions him in James chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Ye have heard of the patience of Job. He was greatly commended, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Again, a real man, even of like passions to us. He knew what it was to weep. He knew what losses were, trials and difficulties in his life. He was nonetheless a sinner like us all. He wasn't perfect. Certainly read at the end of this book how the Lord corrects him. But even Job, he looked for the Savior to come. If you just notice in Job chapter 19, and in the verse 25 there we read, he says this, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job believed in a redeemer, therefore he knew he was a sinner. He believed that first promise, that first gospel promise of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would come into this world. Job's hope was the same hope as ours, the redeemer that would eventually come, that God would be manifest in the flesh. He didn't know how, but he knew that God would redeem. And he knew that he would see his Redeemer in the flesh. He said, and though after my skin and worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He knew that he would see God, that he would see the Redeemer. And then he said, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins, and by the word their reins means kidneys, actually in the Hebrew be consumed within me. Although my everything will be eaten up, the worms will 
take it up, he believed. Remember what the Lord said, marvel not, the hour is coming, all that are in the graves shall come out of the graves. Job believed in the resurrection as we do. But as you know, and as I said much earlier, God in his wisdom and providence even employed Satan's wickedness. Of course, God is never the author of sin. But, of course, it was all for the glory of God. And Satan, stirring up the wicked Sabaeans and Chaldeans, brought great calamity upon the house of Job. And we have to say, friends, God's ways are past finding out. And who are we to question God? And we know at the end of it all, we're told that the Lord restored Job twofold. Double, not tenfold, but twofold. All that he had. Read at the close of the book. Oh, he lost so much. He had the great loss, I think. One of the great losses was ten children. Imagine that, losing ten children in one day. His home, his family. His cattle, all of his oxen, all of his sheep, his camel, all of his servants, everything that he had was taken away. And he was left with a wife that said, well, why don't you curse God and die? Not much comfort there, is there? Well, that was Job's life. And there was an upright man, we're told. Job chapter 2, if you just turn there quickly for a moment, I'm giving you some background Job had friends. No doubt he had many friends, but there were three specifically, notice Job 2 verse 11, that came specifically to see him. They made an appointment to come and see him and to comfort him, to mourn with him. They did care about him. Now, many have suggested that they didn't care about him. That's not true. I want you to notice Job 2 verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. That is what their hearts were set at. And if you come down, they not only did that, but when they saw Job, from afar off, they couldn't believe it. They could scarcely recognize his face. He was covered from head to toe with sores. And he was scraping the pus and the mucus with broken shards of pottery. We notice when they arrived, verse 12, when they lifted up their eyes afar off, it says they knew him not. In the Hebrew it means they did not recognize him. They lifted up their voice and wept and rent everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. And you notice the verse 13, it was for how long? For seven days. Could you imagine that? Friends come and see you for seven days and they were with Job. They cared about him. It says, So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. You can't tell me that these men were not, that they were insensitive. They were sensitive to Job. They saw all that he suffered. 
You know, the modern commentators will tell you, well, these were foolish men. Well, they might have been foolish in terms of judging Job's heart, but they spoke many wise things, and we can learn many wise things from them. And they didn't speak too rashly. Well, they spoke rashly about Job's heart. Of course, only God knows the heart. But what else they said was wise. But you see, only God can discern the heart. What they've been saying throughout the book of Job, let me just put it in a nutshell, is that Job was harboring some secret sin in his life. And then you notice, as we read chapter 31, Job, he he covers a, a plethora of things in his life, how he cared for widows, how he cared for the poor, how he did many good things, and, and those things are all commendable. His life before men. We're told he justified himself, but not God. Job was looking for a reason. Why, Lord, are you doing this to me in my life? Why all these disasters? Why all this loss? And of course, they're accusing him. Job, you must be harboring some secret sin. Now, it must be said again, Job was not a sinless man. He had his faults. But Job forgot one thing, to glorify God. Yes. You see, Job forgot this, that God is perfect. God is perfect. And what God is doing is right. And anything that may have happened in your life that might seem to be a disaster, all God's ways are perfect. One day you will understand. One day everything will fit together. Where do you deserve to be? Let's begin there this afternoon. Hell. You hear what I said? You deserve to be in hell. So let us not complain. Let us not say God is unjust, friends. We must start always with the right foot forward. I don't mean the physical right foot, but the correct foot forward. That's what I mean. You must always consider what you deserve as a sinner. And that's where we must always begin with our thinking. And as we come to our text, we notice here how Elihu, the son of Barukal, he seems to come out of nowhere. He's not spoken all this while. In fact, in chapter 2, you'll notice that his name is not even mentioned there. He just seems to come out of nowhere as if the Spirit of God has just sent him and he has appeared on the scene. Well, I believe that is the case. And he addresses Job here because it says there, he justified himself rather than God. What is it to justify oneself? It's to clear oneself. You know what it is when you go to the computer and you type in and you want to justify the left margin, the right margin. You want to set it straight. Job has been saying, let me set the record straight about myself. Yes, but what about the record about God? Have you considered God? Oh, has he said many things about God? But God is perfectly just. While he tried to justify himself, and that can always be the case, you see. And we may live 
fairly good and upright lives compared to others. But there can always be the secret complaint in our hearts. Can there not be? And behind it all, we are justifying ourselves. To justify is to clear one of guilt or false charges. And Elihu really brings this out here. And he's angry here. His wrath was kindled against Job. And then to summarize it quickly before we come to this text, when this is revealed to Job, Job is humbled. And then Job, we are told, begins to pray for his friends. Notice in Job 42, verse 10, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. You see, Job then began to pray for his friends. His friends had a great need. They had a need of understanding that, first of all, they couldn't discern his heart. And he had to pray for them. And no doubt they had to pray for him. That this man would not try to justify himself, but rather justify God. Now, we come to our text here. This young man, younger than the rest, and now let me say this first of all, as a word of caution, just because you're young, don't think you're Elihu. Okay? This is about wisdom from above. That's what James speaks about. It's first of all peaceable and easy to be entreated. And we need to learn God's wisdom, don't we, in this life. And you cannot know wisdom without knowing Christ, first of all. Elihu says here, I said days should speak and a multitude of years should teach wisdom. So this is really how he begins his discourse, how he begins to address Job and his three friends. And this is really where we need to begin. As we begin a new year, Elihu here by the Spirit of God is saying to us, here is a lesson, here is a sermon just in this one verse. Days should speak, and a multitude of years should teach wisdom. Of course, God is over providence, isn't he? Every day of our lives are ordered by God. That's why days should speak to you. Do you watch God? Do you listen to God in the providence of days? As the world unfolds and the history of this world unfolds before your very eyes, Are you becoming despondent or are you becoming discouraged? Well, let me say, if you're becoming despondent, you're not reading your Bible. Because if you read your Bible, you will see that the world should be and is exactly in the state that it is. This world is not a utopia. Neither ever will it be. This world is coming to an end. And this world is a cruel and wicked world, governed by the prince of the power of the air. And there is wickedness everywhere. There's wickedness in your heart, in my heart. There's wickedness all around. And we should have learned by this last year that has passed that we are sinful and that we are wicked, more wicked than we could ever know. 
we may be saved, but we still have what are called inward corruptions. You may obtain knowledge in this last year. You may have improved in your understanding and your learning the things of the world and even things of the Bible. But what have you learned about your heart? Paul could say this as a seasoned saint, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Have you learned that, friend? Days of your life should speak, should tell you that you cannot trust yourself, that you cannot even trust your own heart. The Scriptures say, Cursed is the man that trusteth in man, but blessed is the man that trusteth in God. And so firstly, as we think here upon this text, days should speak. One thing you should be learning about yourself, as I should be learning about myself, is that we are very weak and we are very sinful. Therefore, we must take heed. You think of it. Survey in your mind what I've just said about the book of Job. Survey his friends. Analyze them. They, if you read all their discourses over Job, have made many inventions about God and many inventions about Job. They've imagined many things. And young people are like this, even older. People make their own ideas of God, make their own understanding and assessments how God is at work. Because you do not know why people do things the way they do and why God does the things that he does. Do you know? You do not know. We know very little. You see, Job's friends, although they said many right things, they weren't right in everything, were they? And they had to learn that they themselves were very weak, very foolish, very ignorant. And it had to take a young man full of the Spirit of God who didn't have perhaps half the years that they had to come alongside them and correct them. And this young man was very timid. He was not proud. He said he was afraid because he was much younger. This young man had learnt that even with age should come wisdom. That's what verse 7 says. With age should come wisdom. Now let me ask you the question. How long have you claimed to be a Christian? How much advancement have you made in the Christian walk? Look at this young man. He's made a prolific advancement. But let us be careful that we don't think that with young age comes wisdom. Wisdom comes from this book. Read Ecclesiastes 12. There is the making of many books, and they will make a man weary. But true wisdom comes from the shepherd of this book. That's what we're told. If you just turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, and notice Solomon's words near the close of the book itself. Look at verse 8. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, 
He still taught the people knowledge, yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought out to find out acceptable words, and that which was acceptable, and, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. Now notice the words of the wise are as goads or pricks, and as nails, now notice, fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. There's only one Lord and one shepherd. And the real wisdom you need, friends, is this book. I don't care what books you've read, or what book you're reading, if it does not comport with the word of God, it's not wisdom. We must learn wisdom from Christ, who is wisdom, who is the shepherd. Now, look at Job's friends, producing all kinds of arguments as to what was right and what was wrong. Let me say there are many and have been many inventions and ideas of God. We know this from Ecclesiastes. That God made man upright, but he has made many inventions. That is either inventions of God, inventions of religion. I was reading just this last week, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, there are an estimated 10,000 distinct religions worldwide have been over the years. Now, having said that, about 84% of religions come under 12 classical religions. Buddhism, Christianity, Confucianism, Hinduism, Islam, and so on. 84%. So there is a vast plethora. But even under Christianity, we could say uh, there are many false groupings that would come under Christianity. And not all that is supposed truth is truth. You have the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and so on, and we could go on. And we do not add to God's word. The Mormons have their book of Mormon, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower book, and so on. But there is one Lord. You see, Christianity, the difference between Christianity and other religions is its claim to exclusivity. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way. He didn't say, take your pick amongst the religions of this world. He said, I am the truth. And he said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. In other words, I am the one mediator. There are not mediators. There's one mediator. There's one mediator between God and man. And we're told by Paul it is the man, Christ Jesus. Isn't it? First Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. For who? For them to be testified in due time. You will see who they are. Because they will all come to faith. Because God will quicken them and give them a faith. Because all men are totally depraved and dead in trespasses and sins until they are made alive. Therefore given a living faith. Salvation is entirely of God's grace. What did he say? He said, the Lord Jesus, no man can come to me 
except the Father which has sent me draw him. It's impossible. Has this last year taught you the depravity of man's heart? You think of all those that you've tried to witness to, and you've given them Bible verse after Bible verse, and you've tried to persuade them to come along to church, and that you've seen them slip and fall and slide in this world, and you've seen them get into awful messes, but will they come? Not of themselves. What to be teaching you of the total depravity of man's heart. The Lord said, no man can come to the Father which hath sent me except he be drawn. And I will raise him at the last day. You see, Job realized himself that he himself was a sinner and that he was vile. I said the first point is that this last year ought to have taught us that we are weak. Look at Job. For so long he had walked perfectly, it seems. Not a slip, hardly that we can tell. But then all of a sudden, when the trials of life come, we start to see his cracks and his faults. And let me say this is true of every one of us that are redeemed, even by grace. What is God teaching us through the days and through the years. I said days should speak. Have you realized more and more that you don't know as much as you thought you knew and certainly you don't understand as much as you thought you understood. And you're much weaker than you ever thought you were. I think Job began to realize that. He was weak. And surely his friends of great... Wisdom and learning and understanding and experience of life. These three friends, they realize that now. They didn't have it all summed up, did they? Yet it takes a young man full of the Spirit of God. And that's the difference. Elihu could not glory in himself. This is the experience of every child of God that he is ignorant apart from God, that he is weak apart from God. And the nearer we get to heaven, the more sinful he sees himself. That's what you ought to be learning. Days should speak. They should be telling you. And they should be telling you God is ordering your life. You know, God is... Ordered everything in this world. He even ordered and arranged that Satan should so attack Job, but he could only go so far. And that basically God is good. This would work for Job's good and God's glory in the end. Think of the vast, vast number of Christians that have benefited from the book of Job the trials and the lessons that they've learned. How often, friends, have we overestimated ourselves, just as Job and his friends did. As we look back over this last year, we'd be too ashamed to number the times that we've had to repent of our thoughts and of our sins and of our folly, daily, hourly, 
And yet God is always good, isn't he? Jonathan Edwards said, A truly humble man is sensible of his natural distance from God, of his dependence on him, of the insufficiency of his own power and wisdom, that it is by God's power that he is upheld and provided for, and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and guide him, and his might to enable him to do what he ought to do for him. You see, we don't even know what to do unless God tells us what to do. That's why you better read your Bible. You will know not what sanctification is without the word. Because the Lord Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. Now let me ask you, in the last days and the years of this last year, have you been learning from your Bible? How to live godly in Christ Jesus. To give back the life that you owe to God. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, if you have been quickened by His Spirit, what have the last days, what what has last year said about yourself as a Christian? What's it said about me? My friends, days have spoken. There's a sense in which last year has spoken about you. It's spoken about me. Do they... Bear the mark upon us, O wretched man. Yes, I can say that. Paul could say that about himself. And every true, sincere Christian will say that about himself. But he doesn't wallow in despair. What does Paul say at the end of Romans 7? He speaks about the wretchedness of his own heart, doesn't he? But notice what he says at the end of Romans chapter 7. As he considers his poor service, he says, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. You see, the sinner that truly casts himself upon Christ and is sincere, he has a hope. He says he's wretched. And you see, it's the grace of God that brings us to see our wretchedness and cast ourselves upon Christ. He says, so then with a mind I serve the law of God. You've got to be renewed in your mind. But he says, this body, but with the flesh, sin. But you know, flesh shall not prevail. Christian has a new mind, a new spirit, a new heart. But you see, it tells me days should speak, as we read here, and a multitude of years teach wisdom. As you apply the days of your life, what is it teaching you in wisdom? That you are a sinful man. And you're a sinful young woman if you are the Lord's. Or not. But you're dying. You don't ever reach sinless perfection. That's why you ever need the Savior, don't you? Because at the end of the all, what is your hope? It can be in nothing less than Jesus Christ. Not in anything else, not in sacraments, not in baptism, not in church membership. None of that can save you. 
but only Jesus Christ. That's the sinner's only hope, isn't it? Christ, what Paul looked to. What should days say? They should speak. They should be speaking to you. Therefore, you should listen to them. You know, somebody has once said, and I've often heard it said, that we have one mouth and two ears. Therefore, let us use them in proportion. Maybe we'd be better off if we spoke less and listened more. Listen more to God. Also, prayerfulness, watchfulness. We should be more fervent if days have told us how weak we are. Then we should listen to God. We should pray more. We should guard our hearts. Even Job said, concerning himself, look at verse 1 of chapter 31. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Job was a serious man. You know, as serious as you can be and you should be, remember, guard your heart. For out of it flow the issues of life. Or you can make a covenant with your eyes. But what about your heart? Is your heart right with God? That our hearts be right with God? Something else? As we read the text here, Verse 7, I said, days should speak and a multitude of years should teach wisdom. What do days tell us? Surely as you look over this last year and the years, the few years that you've had young people, surely you, you should be learning with me that we are born to sorrow and trouble in this life. Does Job not say this? Look at Job 5, 7. Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man is born to trouble. Why? Because it's a fallen world. It is a fallen world. And people are dying, I think, much sooner than many expect. I'm hearing recently that there are a lot of sudden, unexpected deaths. I don't know the reason for that, but there are a lot. And the media aren't telling us why. There are a lot of sudden, unexpected deaths. We're told in Psalm 90, Moses, in that older psalm, says, The days of our years, if they be threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. You may not live long. And the time that you have, it might be an illness. We had somebody on our street taken away last year, young family, young man, left a wife and children, very young family, suddenly taken, good job, everything in order, gone. Some given to live to a ripe old age. But then suddenly they come off. Well, they should speak if you're unsaved. Shouldn't they speak? Do you read the headlines? As you look at the obituary column, there's always names in there every week, isn't there? People that die. 
should tell us, prepare to meet thy maker. Ecclesiastes 11, Solomon, he says this, Truly the light is sweet and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. And then he says, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. And then he adds this, But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. You see, despite the quickness that God takes so many's lives in, suddenly people still do not wake up. They live as if they're immortal beings here upon the earth. But you must know this, God will bring everyone to judgment. Who have we lived for? The only life worth living is a life for God. How has your last year been spent? Has it been spent living for God? The only one that can give you real life is Christ. And he gives it. He is called the light of men. And yet there are so many that live in open denial of God. Every day. And that God is, think of it, how long suffering is with this world. There were those in Luke chapter 13. And uh, there was this thing that happened in our Lord's day. The Tower of Siloam fell down and killed 18 people. And there were those, Pilate mixed their sacrifices with with their own blood, and slew them. The Lord Jesus said, suppose that they are worse sinners than you? He said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. I say, friend, death, disaster, these things are all in God's hand. And God quickly takes people away from this life. Days should speak to you. And a multitude of years should teach wisdom. If God has spared you, how much wisdom do you have? How much have you read of the Word of God? So many give more time to the television and social media than the wisdom of this book. The alarm bells ought to be ringing. I prefer the wisdom of this world. You know what happens to them? They go to a lost eternity. Because they never knew Christ, who was wisdom, who was power, who was knowledge, who truly gives life, light and understanding and peace all men men are terrible men have made so many inventions of God and there are so many false forms of Christianity friends wake up, wake up, wake up 
a sinner is saved, he's saved by Jesus Christ. And that, that melts a man's heart to serve God. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. For me to know Jesus Christ is everything. Have we learned, if we truly are Christ's, to be content with our lot? Something else? Or are you becoming more and more contented with the things of this world, the paraphernalia, and all the gadgets and the things that the world has to offer? Not Paul. Paul could say, I've learned to be content, whatever state I am in. Because he had Christ. Have we learned to keep our wandering heart and mind fixed upon Christ? Because we're so sinful, we're so weak, we're so prone to falling. Have you learned increasingly that God is kind and much wiser than you and I? Have we learned that? Think of the times we've had such harsh thoughts of God. But you know, any calamity that has come in our lives, he has meant for our good. I mean that. And I know some have gone through unspeakably difficult things. But God is unspeakably kind, my friends. Too wise to err. Too good to be unkind. We sometimes sing it. David could say, I've been young and I am now old, but I've not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth his seed, is blessed. If you're a Christian, you're content. Well, you ought to be content. Do days teach you that, to be more content? As you look around and you see unsaved people, how discontented they are with this world and their lives. They're miserable. I was, what something in passing, somebody sent something to me. I think it was Mr. Elon Musk, he said, you know, who's now the owner of Twitter. He said, uh, most people, he said, are not really happy. They may look happy, but they're not. It may seem like they have a lot. Now, there's a man that has an enormous, vast accumulation of wealth, doesn't he? You can't take it with you, friends. Soon we'll meet our God. Trouble is, we try to make more of the things that we have than of the God who gave it. Life. And if he gave his son for you, make more of him. And he'll make more of you. He'll make more use of you in your life. God can't use proud people. He won't use proud people, will he? He has to humble us. He has to bring us to see Christ is wisdom. What did the Lord Jesus Christ say? Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Not just here. Some people are satisfy themselves and comfort themselves with just hearing. But not being doers of the word. This is what they should teach.
Notice that there is a spirit in man. And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Thank God there is a spirit in man. Man is spirit, isn't he? We're not, you can't talk to a dog. Dog doesn't have a conscience. Neither does a pig or an elephant. We are made in the image of God. And we know that we are made for better and higher things. And if God has quickened our spirit, we understand. We understand, don't we? The spirit, we're told, is the candle in us. It is that light in us that God has given. There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Now, if you don't have it, God gives. And he awakens. Doesn't he awaken so that he may give? Now, notice verse 9. Great men are not always wise. Would you young people learn this, please? I don't want to speak condescendingly. But great men, and we may even speak of great men like Elon Musk and all the big movers and shakers, are not always wise. Neither do the aged understand judgment. But this is from God. And if God has brought you to see once again, that you are an unworthy sinner. Your only hope is Christ. You keep living by Christ. And you walk by his light. You don't invent things for yourself. You read his word. This is the word. And the word trumps every other book, every other teaching that this world ever has to offer. We need to cling to it. Remember what the Lord said. Heaven and earth will depart. But not my word. Not the man that trusts in this word. And every day he should be telling you God is on his throne. And you know what? While the days speak, they will testify against you or for you in that final day when you meet God and you will as I will. Your days will testify against you and I. May the Lord address our souls here personally and privately in our own hearts this afternoon. Amen.